Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, I'm Alice Living, best-selling author, personal trainer, and host of Give Me Strength, where we discuss the positives of living a stronger life physically and mentally with the hope to inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. Hi, everyone, and a very happy new year to you. Welcome to another episode of Give Me Strength. Now, today I'm joined by someone who I've followed on Instagram for ages and who's a big inspiration to me, and that is Dr. Gemma Newman. Gemma is a doctor who has worked in medicine for 20 years, and since qualifying as a doctor, she has developed a specialist interest in holistic health, plant-based nutrition, and lifestyle medicine. In her practice, she has come to understand that body, mind, and soul are not separate, and that it is only in addressing the root causes of stress and disconnection that we can truly heal from the inside out. She has just published a brilliant book, which I got my hands on uh, just before Christmas, called Get Well, Stay Well, Six Healing Health Habits You Need to Know, which is what we're here to discuss today. So Gemma, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Alice. I'm so excited to be here with you and I hope you had a lovely Christmas. You too, and a very, very happy new year to you. Now, we kind of find ourselves in peak wellness month, which is why I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. And I feel like your book is going to be particularly relevant to what people want to hear this January. You know, there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of people trying to sell you stuff, (laughs) but really you're someone who kind of cuts through the noise with expertise, 20 years as a doctor, and really a lot of kind of like, you know, groundedness in not just looking at health, but looking at kind of much more than that, as I addressed in in the introduction. So first of all, I'd really just love to ask you, because like I said, I got my hands on your book and I'd love to know what kind of encouraged you to, I guess, create the book, to create the concept and the method that you've you've written about. Oh, well, thank you for asking that. You know, I feel like this book has been a lifetime in the making because I look back on my early days as a doctor and all the things I learned in medical school and all the things I learned in my first few years. And it was a, it was such a steep learning curve because what I began to realize over time was that people didn't fit into the boxes that we wanted to put them in. People didn't always fit the protocols. They didn't always respond to the medications. Surgery didn't always go the way it was supposed to go. And I realized fairly early on that if people were going to actually feel good in their bodies and minds, we needed to look at things in a much more broad way. And that's why I was drawn to general practice because, you know, you do see so much of everything. Um, But again, I realized over many years that life is hard. Um, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of suffering and 
I don't think that the medical model as it stands really covers enough to help people empower themselves to health as much as they possibly can. I see people from all walks of life with a huge range of issues and I wanted to give them something that was free um, easy to access and would hopefully help them understand some of the reasons why um, they may be suffering and some of the things that they could do to help themselves feel better. So that's that's my why. Um, I'm so passionate about it. And when I wrote the first book, it was it was very nutrition focused. But this book also has nutrition. It has a whole chapter on nutrition, but it's very much more broad because it's it's got heart and soul in it as well, which is what I think is so crucial to all of our health. Well, yeah, I think that was so interesting because when I first opened the book and I sort of looked at the chapters, I was really taken aback by the fact that the two opening chapters are titled Gratitude and Love. And I think as a doctor, we're so used to kind of conversations being about exercise, about nutrition, as you said. But I wondered if you could yeah. tell me why these feature so prominently within your six habits. And, and you know, it's a, as a surprising thing for a doctor to say, you know, gratitude and love are big kind of components of our overall health and well-being is a, a bit of a shocking thing. So yeah, I'd love to understand the reason behind that. Well, thank you. It is. It's a, it's a funny thing for doctors to be talking about, I suppose. But for me, it really speaks to the very root of the human experience. When you look at uh, data on what makes us well and what makes us happy, we see that our emotional states really drive our physical states and vice versa. Like they, they are extremely connected. And studies are showing us that active gratitude practices can actually improve our physical health and also reduce our perception perception of pain. And again, gratitude is one of those things where I don't want people to think that you have to be positive all the time. That's actually not necessarily the focus of the gratitude chapter. What I wanted people to think about is how they process and move through pain, how they learn with and through pain, and how they notice the good stuff more as a habit. And I think those three concepts are very much intertwined in that first chapter. Um, because it's not all about ignoring the bad stuff. Um, and it's not all about, you know, trying to think that your life is amazing when it really doesn't feel that way. But it's really about understanding those root emotions and working through them in the most healthy way, which I think is actually one of the main things that really brings us a sense of acceptance and peace with where we're at. And then hopefully we can move forward in, in a much more uh, positive way. And the love chapter, talk to me about that one. Well, so with love, I think people just automatically think of, you know, boyfriends, uh, girlfriends, husbands, wives, significant others, lovers. It's not about that. It's, it's, it, it can be about that, but it's also about giving yourself compassion, self-love, if you like, and also allowing that to expand out to not only your family, your friends, but also your wider community. And I think, again, it's a very underlooked um, sort of area where when we focus our attention on these more, um, expansive emotions such as love, it allows us um, the mental space and bandwidth to think more about the needs of the people around us. And I think as busy women, especially, I'm sure you can relate to this, there are so many different things on our to-do list. And especially if you have families or elderly parents, or if you're a carer, it can be really hard to find the time for yourself. And it might feel really impossible. It might feel like, oh, why is this doctor talking about this? I already give so much of myself to other people. But what I wanted to focus on in this chapter is the self-compassion as well. So it's it's really looking at the way that we talk about ourselves to ourselves um, and also talking about the flip side of love, which is 
sometimes resentment and um, lack of forgiveness, which I think is one of the things that can actually really eat away at our health as well. Um, and so in the love chapter, I also draw attention to ways in which we can process when people have let us down. You know, when we feel betrayed or when we've, our lives have not always matched up to our expectations, allowing the emotion of love to come in, in a way that actually serves us. And, you know, the, the old cliche that forgiveness is not f- for the person that you're forgiving, it's for you. It's actually very true. Um, and again, it doesn't mean that you have to bring people back into your life if they're not in it and you don't want them in it or it's unhealthy for them to be in it. But it's really about, processing those negative things and allowing them space in your heart so that your heart can then expand. Uh, and again, it's it's one of those things you don't often hear GPs talking about, but it is so crucial. And I, I do have these conversations, believe it or not, with my patients from time to time as well. Well, I think that's one of the things that I was going to pick up on there is that I'm sure that being a GP for 20 years, you recognize more than most how much, you know, as much as you're on the front line of, of, physical health and and trying to keep people physically well there's so much that's going to you know there's so much of your time sorry that's going to be spent dealing with the the you know the mental struggles that people are going through the more and more that I live on this planet I recognize you know how many people are struggling how many people are suffering in silence and I think a GP office is probably a place where you spend a lot of your time you know, dealing with people's struggles. And I think that must be really insightful. And I guess given that you have that experience coming at this book with those first two opening chapters, not being about the physical health, but actually being about our mental state, our inner, you know, inner critic and inner voice. And it's just really interesting that you've taken those two things. And I guess your career has shaped maybe why you've approached it in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a real space in community missing you know people are more lonely and disconnected than I can ever remember a lot of people come to their GP for lots of different reasons and of course primarily it's physical health that's usually why they book their appointments but I see a lot of um, psychological issues um, that really impact our physical health and a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, uh, increasing rates of OCD, increasing um, complications of um, people suffering with challenges as a result of neurodiversity. The world is quite unforgiving towards people with difference. And I see that playing out amongst the most vulnerable of my patients. The more I see it, the more I really want people to feel like their inner world can make a difference to their outer world um, because the world isn't very fair. And I wish that there was that space for people to feel like they're part of a community that's not necessarily just online and to feel as though they have that supportive network. And again, that's some of the, one of the things that I really wanted to emphasize in the book is how you create community around yourself. I mean, my aim ultimately is that people might see their GPs or feel the need to see their GPs less um, than they currently need to. But yeah, I, I really do want to emphasize that because I think society as it is now is I think really struggling there's a lot of disconnection I see a lot more young people too I remember years ago when I first started it was very much just people with um, either frail elderly or chronic health conditions that I would see but now rising rates of inflammatory bowel disease in young people uh, rising rates of anxiety depression um, uh, IBS um even things, you know, autoimmune diseases, uh, the rates of these are all going up. And um, I feel as though 
there's a lot of things that we need to look at in society at large, but um, I want people to start where they can. So that's why I wrote something like this, that people could actually get their hands on and treat it a bit like a friend. You know, they can read through it, but they can come back to it. They can journal it. They can make their own plan. They can look at their own health history. I've done a, a, a bit at the back where you can actually go through your own life, your own experiences, infections you may have been exposed to, uh, traumas that you may have had, just to kind of piece together and understand where you're at now and where you want to go. So yeah, it's something that I think will hopefully give people a few more of the tools that they they really need. What I'm loving that I'm hearing you say is that rather than just looking at the, the root problem or the issue that someone comes to you with, you are someone that's able to step back and have uh, an understanding of conce- uh, context and an understanding of the wider picture that someone's experiencing and and even stepping further back from that a collective experience that people are going through whether that be rising rates of you know anxiety and depression OCD is a big one you know even the fact that you you reference chronic illness there you know and autoimmune conditions I think it's just really interesting that I guess yeah the world is a difficult place right now and I think that one of the things that I want to pick up on within that is really you know the role of and this tricky balance of our physical and our mental health and the the kind of seesaw effect that that has you know one affects the other one then you know affects the other and I think that what I'd love to understand from you is how much of an impact we know that our mental health has on our physical health. So why I ask this is I think a lot of people can maybe be experiencing things such as, you know, chronic stress or increased anxiety, maybe even, you know, verging on conditions such as OCD or, or more complex mental health issues without maybe knowing the physical signs that something's going on for them. And I'd love to understand, mm. you know, how you speak to people about the role of mental well-being on our physical health and, and the kind of balance and the and the intersection of those two things. I always approach those kinds of conversations with an element of sensitivity because um, I, I suspect, especially for a lot of my patients, I see that deep down they have um, an understanding that the stresses and strains and stresses that they have are impacting their health. Um, And it's something that it has to sort of come from them first because um, when I speak about it with them and they tell me whatever problem they're facing, I just ask them a bit about their wider experience. I ask them, well, what else is going on for you at the moment? Um, Is there anyone that you generally confide in? How's work? How's the family? And it gives them the space to actually reflect and look at all the different aspects of their life and they be, they then begin to see where some patterns might be emerging so that's quite helpful because people often have the answers that they're searching for within but sometimes it takes just somebody reflecting back to them on the situation that they're in for them to really notice it it's a bit like i know this is a strange analogy but i sometimes think of it as a bit like when you have um a new car or um, you know, you're looking to buy a new car and you start to notice that car wherever you go. It's a bit like that. I think with anything, once you start to notice, then it brings um, more of an awareness to the situation that you're in and then you can start to make changes. When you're stressed, you really are um, generally speaking more engaging your sympathetic nervous system, which is your fight and flight nervous system rather than your parasympathetic, which is your rest and renew nervous system. And when you're in that state um, for more than short bursts of time, it can affect your hormone levels, um, 
like cortisol, for example, or adrenaline. It can also affect, um, therefore, your blood pressure, um, your pulse rate, um, and it can affect the way that you breathe. And when you look at those basic physiological changes that are happening in that moment, but they're happening frequently, you begin to see then some of the effects of the more long-term impacts of that. Um, people who are living with things like sort of chronic hypertension, it's definitely their stress link. And also, interestingly, you have some of the same physiological changes when you exercise, but the beauty of exercise is that it allows you to have a lower resting heart rate overall um, and a lower blood pressure overall. But <laughs> So that's a good thing. It's like a, a good hormetic stress. But when you're under those sorts of physical and mental stresses long and that's where you can run into problems. Yeah, it's really interesting that you um, kind of identified two types of stress. And I think that one of my questions was actually on that subject was stress is a is a big thing. And I think, you know, January can be a difficult month for people. And I think that, you know, whether it be financial stress, work stress, family stress, whatever it is, it's a time when people can feel that acute, you know, pressure to, um, you know, have to do certain things or, or commit to certain things. And I think I really try and, um, you know, identify that there are good and bad types of stress. And as much as that's a really binary way of looking at it, um, it's, it's good to understand that as a whole, stress is, is, is a big umbrella term for lots of different things that fall underneath it. So exercise is a great stress. And again, like you said, it has loads of positive mental and physical health benefits, but it is a stress. And if that's on top of an already really stressful, you know, life, situation, um, sometimes that can also have a negative impact. It means that you never allow yourself, as you said, to kind of slip back into that parasympathetic nervous system. So I, I would love to understand how you approach talking about and managing stress. We know that stress is something that, you know, over, over a period of time, if we find ourselves at high levels of stress, like you said, it can actually have a negative impact on our, on our physical and mental health. So how do you talk to people about managing stress? Does this feature in the book and what are your tips to kind of help us, especially in January, bring those stress levels down, tap into that parasympathetic state and find ourselves in a calmer you know, way of being? Oh, it's a, such a fabulous question, Alice. And there's so many different things I can suggest. And yes, they are all in the book. <laughs> I've actually written, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's actually a, a table near the back where you can look at all of the different practical tools for each of the sections. Um, but when it comes to stress, I think... The main thing I would look at is, first of all, it's not just looking at yourself, it's looking at your environment and how you can actually find ways to um, improve that home environment in some way. Um, or the external stressors that you are responding to. Um, and if for any reason that's not possible, in addition, I would also look at basic things that you can do either in the moment or in general. So, it's, it's a very broad question and you have to come at it from several different angles. So the first angle is external stressors and what you can do to change those. If you can't change those or they're in the past, uh, but you are still experiencing the psychological um, effects of them. And then also the other way I'd look at it is um, from your mind perspective. And, and then another way of looking at it is through your body perspective. Uh, and so you can actually minimize stress and maximize your parasympathetic nervous system activity through 
uh, your body as well as through your mind. And in fact, sometimes it's easier to start with the body because you can't just tell yourself, well, don't feel stressed or just don't feel anxious. Now that doesn't work. Um, so I always aim to, if that's the situation you're in and you're in an acute stressful, stressful situation or you're in a panic situation is to start with breathing because that is surefire one of the best ways to engage the parasympathetic nervous system consciously because there aren't really any other ways to do that. Um, you breathe naturally, everybody breathes, but not everybody breathes in a way that um, can maximize the potential for their parasympathetic nervous system to kick in. And so focusing on breath is a really good one in, in the moment. And there's loads of different breathing techniques that I talk about in the book. But one of the big, or two of the big tips I would give you around breath is to aim to extend your out breath longer than your in breath, which is a great way of starting to engage the diaphragm and starting to engage the vagus nerve, which is the one that helps you to engage your parasympathetic nervous system. And the second tip is to breathe out. Everybody often says, take a deep breath when you're feeling stressed and anxious. But if you immediately aim to go, taking a big breath in and your lungs are already half expanded and your shoulders go up, you don't really feel any better. So my top tip around that would simply be to actually gently push the air out as far as you can. So you're actually rejecting the air, pushing it out first before gently allowing your lungs to fill back up again. It's more of a relief. It's more of a relax as you inhale rather than <gasps> trying to do it from up here in the shoulders. You have to aim to try and do it from right down in the belly. So pushing the air out first is a great tip. Um, and then it can set you up for whatever breathing practice you want to do, whether that be something called box breathing, whether that be something called four, seven, eight breathing. There's so many different types and they, they all work really well. It just depends on what resonates with the person. I challenge anyone who's not at the moment currently trying to like slow their breath down. <laughs> and copy what you've just been yeah. saying I also find one of my best tips is like an audible sigh you know sometimes when you feel really yeah like a really stressful moment and I I've actually found it really helpful recently because I'm working from home I don't have any distractions so my mind can just go zero to 100 miles an hour there's nothing to kind of pull me away except for having lovely conversations like this obviously but I find sometimes <laughs> like you said that focus on the breath can almost create more of a sense of anxiety because I'm feeling like this, you know, it's right up in my chest. So sometimes going, a, ah, like really letting it out, yeah. that really helps me. Um, and well, luckily I don't work with anyone else. Otherwise <laughs> they might find it a yeah. bit weird if I'm just sat there going, ah, the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> but this is it. You, your, your physiology has found a way to push the air out because you've, you've understood that you're just, if you try and take a deep breath like this from your shoulders, you're just not going to feel any better. And like you've rightly said, it's, I think another thing is discharging energy. You're obviously somebody that, that finds you get a lot of endorphins released when you exercise, which is fantastic. But um, there are other ways to release energy. And believe it or not, I talk about this in the book. <laughs> Have you ever noticed, I don't know if you've noticed this, but you, if you've got a dog, you certainly will. Um, what do you think mammals do when they're trying to discharge or release stress from their bodies? Have you got any idea, Alice? Ooh. <laughs> I, do they, do they pant? Do they like? Well, they, they do pant, but that's more to do with if they're trying to, um, 
cool off release heat. Um, yeah. or yeah. release heat. So what they what what they'll do um, is they'll shake. So you you'll notice this with dogs. Um, if they if they've just greeted you or they've just had a fun playtime or they've just had a stressful experience, anything that has kind of increased their sympathetic drive in some way, a few moments later they will they will go off and they'll give a they'll give a shake like this, and then it will all be done. It's literally like a physiological discharge of energy, and then that's it. They move on. And I think to myself, every mammal does this, but we humans we don't. So. One of the things, in fact, that is talked about, I, I've noticed that a friend of mine, Katie Brindle, she talks about it. She's a Chinese medicine practitioner. She's hilarious. She talks about shaking it off. And you literally, you know, you start with the arms, you move on one leg each, and you just shake your body if you're trying to just release some energy. And it's also part of yoga practice. There's a very specific physical leg shake, hip opener exercise that you can do, which actually helps to release energy from the body. And another fun one, which I included in the book as well is forced laughing now this sounds really strange but I promise you it actually does work you you basically force yourself to laugh and it, you could think of something funny or watch a YouTube clip or a favorite comedy video whatever it is and it's also part of a yoga practice there's actually a yoga practice called laughing yoga where you're essentially forcing yourself to laugh. And then of course it turns into a real laugh because you feel so ridiculous and it is quite a funny thing. And then you end up feeling a lot better than you did before you forced yourself to laugh, which again, sounds strange, but I've done it. It works. And, um, you know, it's, it's really fun. <laughs> I knew Taylor Swift was onto something when she said, shake it off. She, she had the right <laughs> idea it there. Off. Shake it off. I also will also add to this, and my mum might be mortified for me to say this, but she has gone to laughing yoga. She's told me all about it. And <laughs> I do think it's brilliant. I do think there's something to be said for that. You know, like sometimes as well, there's just something to be said for being out of our like being outside of our state of being comfortable. You know, like yes. just stepping out of your comfort zone. I, I know that there's there's an amazing. I've had her on the podcast actually, Cat Method, and I spoke about it on her on her episode. But I, she does this like kind of workshop where you have to do interpretive dance. Everyone in the room, so she just puts on like three songs, and everyone just has to dance in a way that comes to them. And I cannot tell you, Gemma, like in the first two minutes of that section, I was dying as in I wanted the ground to swallow me up I was like this is mortifying and I'm an ex-dancer you know like I should have loved it but I was like this is awful and actually what I realized was first of all no one else gave a shit everyone was straight into it really or at least they looked like they were and the second thing is that actually oh my god was it freeing you know like just putting on some music shaking your body getting rid of everything and I do think that and it's this is why I love you. And I think that you you come at this from such a brilliant perspective is that, you know, we're so used to things being very binary in terms of medicine. And then as you, you know, you mentioned kind of more holistic approaches and those two things being really separate. And mm. as much as I think that obviously there's a space for there being a more serious approach in terms of, you know, if, if someone's dealing with difficult conditions where you're having to put your proper medical hat on. But I think for a lot of this stuff that a lot of us are dealing with, i.e. mental stress, um, you know, kind of overwhelm, 
whatever it is, there's something to be said for this kind of synergy between those two worlds really coming together more and us understanding that a combination of those two things can have the best, you know, the best outcome, um, the breath work, the managing of stress. And actually, you know, as you said, you you know, you're seeing a more wider variety of people, particularly ages wise, you know, I think there's also something to be said for us understanding that maybe how we're approaching it isn't necessarily working as it is. And that maybe understanding mm. that taking some of these things into account, helping people to broaden their toolkit of managing certain, you know, things can be so beneficial. And people like yourself really leading the charge on that is is why it's so brilliant. And yes, okay, there needs to be stuff that's, you know, within all of this, essentially grounded in research right you're not going to be sitting there and saying oh this might work there's got to be a groundedness to it where you know we can't be throwing (laughs) um, experimental things at people but I think that if the research is there and it's emerging in a positive way then there's something to be said for us really taking that on board and recognizing that like I said a synergy between those two worlds becoming more apparent we'll be back after this Welcome back to Give Me Strength. I couldn't agree more, Alice. And that's actually another reason why I felt that this book was so important. Because when you look at what research we currently have for a number of these practices, we can see that there's actually a number of good systematic reviews and meta-analyses that identify benefits for people psychologically and physically. And I think it's actually very challenging to navigate the world of wellness in general because you have so much of a mishmash of um, people just acting primarily instinctively um, or on anecdote. um, And you also have people who um, are extremely aware of the benefits, but I don't want people to throw the baby out with the bathwater, if you like. I think a lot of the time, if you're very much rooted in science, you will automatically assume that there is no evidence for certain uh, complementary therapies. Um, and when in fact, actually, you know, there is. Uh, and so one of the purposes that I had in this book was to actually draw people's attention to what evidence we do have um, and and provide people with options that that are in fact evidence-based rather than just saying, oh, why don't you just give that a go and see what happens? Um, it, yeah, this stuff does work. And um, it's nice to be able to present that in a way that hopefully people find easy to read and friendly, but also they can look at the references. There's hundreds of references in the back. So if, if there's other healthcare professionals that want to just check that out and look at the references, they can, and they can feel a little bit more confident about sharing some of this information as well, which is one of the other aims of the book. Absolutely. Now, I couldn't have you on this podcast with you being called the plant-powered doctor without talking about (laughs) nutrition. It is such a huge component of everything you do. And obviously, like you referenced, your first book was centered entirely around nutrition and you still have a section in this book that covers nutrition. So talk to me about your approach to nutrition, you know, as someone who is heavily interested in this area. Um, we are obviously in January as well. So there are going to be some people who are maybe experimenting with veganuary. Um, so talk to me about what being the plant powered doctor encompasses in terms of your approach to nutrition and how you advise others on the subject. 
So yeah, thank you. I think the bottom line is I would encourage everybody to aim to eat more plants. Uh, that is the bottom line message. Um, when we look at the world at large, we see that just four health conditions account for 80% of all premature deaths globally heart diseases, cancers, lung disease, and diabetes, right? The crazy part here is though that about 80% of these premature deaths could be prevented by adopting four healthy lifestyle habits. And the most impactful of those four is a healthy diet predominantly consisting of plants. The other three are regular physical activity, not smoking, and sensible use of alcohol. Um, so I think that is what I find most mind blowing. And that's why I set up the page and the book is essentially food can be one of the most powerful interventions that we have. Um, and because we do it, most of us three times a day, maybe plus snacks, whatever, it's something that we do all the time. And it's something that could have a very measurable impact on our quality of life and our length of life. So yeah, that's why I started talking about food so much. <laughs> and um, I hope, you know, most people hopefully got the message to eat more plants. Uh, I don't want people to go away with the message that they, they have to be plant exclusive. I happen to be for a number of reasons, but not everybody wants to do that or is able to do that. So for me, it's really about finding ways to really max maximize the variety of plants in the diet in a way that is fun, cheap, accessible, and um, sustainable that people can do for life, not just for you know a week or two weeks or whatever the January resolutions might be, is to just make these changes something that they love. So that's, that's my message. And within that, I'm really interested in the role of fiber. Um, I know that there's a lot of emerging research on that. We're hearing a lot of healthcare professionals, particularly in the nutrition space, talk now about not only the role of kind of more plants, but also more fiber specifically. So what do we understand about fiber? What is it for those that might not know? And how can we get more of that in our diets? So fiber is contained only in plant foods. Uh, you don't get it in animal products. And the reason that fiber, well, there's many reasons why fiber is great. It's it's definitely something that has been underemphasized in years gone by. But people used to just think, oh, it's you just need a bit of roughage so you don't get constipated. And that's why people need fiber. But actually, um, first up, constipation is a big problem because it means that you end up recycling hormones that you would otherwise be wanting to excrete or eliminate from your body. Um, and um, so we don't want to get constipated. It's good to have regular bulky bowel movements. Um, but also it's for our gut bugs too. Our healthy gut bugs are the ones that feed off of that fiber, essentially. They eat that fiber. Uh, and when they do, they sometimes do produce a bit of extra gas, which is why if you're not used to it, you start to get a little bit more gassy, but take it slow and you'll soon get through that phase, hopefully. Um, but the idea is that if you're feeding those good gut bugs, they help you to make short chain fatty acids. And these are really helpful compounds um, because they're used to um, help protect and line the gut. Um, and you also use them um, to help you maintain um, good hormonal health. Um, they help you actually also to maintain a good blood brain barrier so that you have a good protection for your nervous system. And there are lots of different ways in which they can really help you. And you can only get those things when you eat a fiber rich diet. Um, and, you know, when I talked earlier about the, the top four causes of premature death and 80% of those could be prevented 
prevented. Like I say, most of them is through this healthy, fiber-rich diet. And research shows that diets low in whole grains and fruit and low in nuts and seeds and vegetables. These are, you know, these are all kind of important sort of fiber-rich foods um, and high in things like salt and saturated fat, uh, mainly from eating things like ultra-processed foods and meat. Um, those are the least healthy. And so, you know, you just have to sort of look at that kind of data to see, I guess, what, what seems kind of obvious, but we can actually sometimes, I think, go around in circles in our own minds thinking, oh, well, you know, there's so much online, isn't there? So many different bits of advice people are trying to give you. But I think if you just stick to the overview of basically aiming to have more fiber, more plants, you can't tend to go wrong. I think it's a really good sort of January resolution. And one that I'm certainly working on is that, you know, so much of January is about, oh, I'm taking this out of my diet. I'm taking that, you know, it's all very loaded in, you know, and, and, and steeped in diet culture. Whereas actually I think that focusing on fiber and more plants can be a really positive addition to your diet in January at a time when a lot of people are stripping stuff out. My goal this month is what can I put in, in terms of variety, experimenting with new recipes? It can be a fun challenge. And I do think, of course, we have to recognize that there are certain barriers to entry, whether that be lack of culinary skills, whether that be budgets, whether that be, um, you know, access to certain things. Absolutely. But I think on the whole, there is something to be said for almost seeing it as a bit of a challenge of how you can start to include more colors, more plants, more roughage, more just good stuff <laughs> in your diet yeah. uh, this yeah. January, you know? And I think for me anyway, it does make me be more creative in the kitchen, which I think is a benefit on the whole. I, I'm sure I'm not the only person who can get stuck making the same five recipes each, each week <laughs> over and over, Absolutely. you know, having the same breakfast, the same dinner. So it is a nice challenge and something that I'm, I'm certainly focusing on this January. Oh, that sounds great, Alice. I love that. And that's, that is such a big part of my message as well, just to eat more of the good stuff. Because what you notice then is if you're enjoying it and you're ex experimenting and getting creative, then you're just broadening your diet in general. And that feels really good. It's good for your body as well. Um, and it can be fun. You know, in the book, it's not, it's, um, I have got a lot of recipes in there as well, actually, but, um, it's a bit boring when you can't see the photos. So what I've done is I've added a QR code in there. So when you tap on it, you can actually see photos of all the gorgeous recipes from the contributors. So it gets you excited. It gets you thinking, oh, I'd quite like to try that one. I got one from Deliciously Ella in there. Uh, I got Rupi, a couple from Rupi Orsha, the Doctor's Kitchen, uh, Happy Pear Chefs, and my own as well. My mum my mum and I, we came up with some great recipes too. So yeah, it's, uh, it's fun. It's fun to get creative and you know just have more 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 plants in your diet well I will definitely be trying some of those recipes I cannot wait for that now obviously we find ourselves chatting in January Gemma and I feel like I couldn't go without asking you about your suggestion for things that people can do this month that are going to positively impact their health and we've talked about lots of things today so it's probably going to be a hard question for you just to distill that down to one thing but I think that Ooh. at times people are maybe feeling the pressure of you know changing their body composition having to do lots and lots that's quite punishing I'd love to hear a positive addition that you think people can focus on this month that might be slightly different to the usual stuff that we're hearing floating around so I think if I had to pick one thing it would be to focus on your values um, the things that you 
find important in your life. And sometimes we don't always know what those values are. We just kind of get stuck in the rut of thinking about our routines and our to-do lists and things like that. If we just take a step back and think about what's important to us, and then you only just have to ask yourself two questions then. And those questions are, what are my values? And what am I going to do today that helps me move towards my values? And it literally could be anything, but it just kind of gets you in that right mindset to, to, to approach the day in a very different way. And, and I'll give you an example because I think sometimes people can get a bit confused about what their values are because I've spoken to people about this before. And I asked um, two different people what their values were and they both said money. I said to one of them, why, why did you say money? And, um, and he said, well, the most important thing to me is to feel like I've got enough money because I need to be able to support my family. And when I was growing up, my mum never had enough money and we would always struggle to buy food. And I want to make sure that my kids never feel like I felt when I was a child. I said, okay, right. So it sounds like to me, your value is actually security. And that's something that is really important to you. And then the other person that said money asked her, why do you say money? And she said, well, I always had this idea that I wanted to be able to keep my, in fact, I do, I keep my passport in my bag. And I know that whenever I want to, I can just go somewhere else. I can just escape. I can feel free. I can, I can um, do all the things I want to do. And if I've got enough money, I never feel trapped. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so it sounds to me like what you really value most more than anything else is freedom. And with both people, you don't necessarily even have to go into the dynamics of why they value security so much or why they value freedom so much, what it is about their previous lives that have led them to that. But it's an understanding of, of what the underlying value is. And then once you understand what it is that's important to you, then you can decide, well, how am I going to how am I going to sort of move towards that today? Um, and for me, one of, one of my top values um, is compassion. And when I think about what that means, it doesn't have to be a big grand gesture. Uh, it doesn't have to be that you're you know, changing the world as you see it on a massive scale. It could be something very small. Um, even showing appreciation to somebody that you just met um, or giving someone a smile in the street. To me, that is one of the things that encompasses compassion. In fact, I'm going off on a tangent. I went last night to get my nails done because I've got an event tonight, which I wanted to look nice for. <laughs> I turned up at the nail salon and this lovely woman was there and I said, have you got time to do pedicure manicure? And it was half an hour before they shut. I knew it was going to take 45 minutes, maybe 50 minutes. She said, sure, no problem. And we got chatting and she was just the sweetest lady. Um, she had just moved to the UK. I was talking to her about how she found it. Um, she was, she, she told me she'd been having a really hard time. Uh, she talked to me about, um, a miscarriage that she'd experienced. She talked to me about the highs and lows of living in a place where she didn't know anyone. She didn't have any support. We had a laugh. We talked about all sorts of things and, you know, it was just, it was an incredibly enriching experience. And she said to me, you know what? I don't mind staying late. I love meeting you. You're the first and last person of the day that actually really made me laugh. And I had a really fun time with, thank you so much. And I got so much from her you know, she really inspired me. She was just the loveliest woman. And I think that cost absolutely nothing, 
but it for me it felt like everything because I realized that you know just living with compassion listening to someone chatting to someone that actually helped me to uphold a value that I find really important and um yeah I feel quite emotional just talking about it because it's something that is so simple so straightforward but if you think about your life in those terms it can actually change the whole trajectory of your life and it doesn't have to be a big grand gesture I have to say and I yeah I loved all of that and I think you're so right and I I find myself as as someone who you know I do live uh, in a very privileged bubble I guess as I'm sure lots of us do you know we live in these worlds where we're fairly comfortable and you know uh, the only thing that I have really learned in my job that I hold really true to to me and, and that I think really drives a lot of what I do is that being a personal trainer working on a gym floor meeting such a whole variety of people I really learned firsthand that you know the saying that you never really know the burden that someone carries until you start speaking to someone rings so true and I walk around everywhere I go really reminding myself that you know everyone's carrying a hurt, everyone's carrying a trauma, everyone's carrying something that is difficult to carry. And leading with compassion, i.e. having that at the forefront of my mind, you know, rather than getting frustrated because there's someone that's pushed in front of me at the queue at Waitrose, or there's someone that's kind of, I don't know, I can't think of any other examples, but you know, there are certain things that can happen to us every single day. And in every situation, I think to myself, I have a choice here. I can choose to feel frustrated, to get annoyed, to be angry, Or I can choose to remember that I don't know what that person's going through. They might have had the worst day ever and they might be completely at rock bottom. And actually for them, they have behaved that way just because, you know, that's all that that they could do. That's all the energy they had to just step in front of me. you You never know. The more I live with that at the forefront of my mind, exactly in the same way as you, you know, having compassion, empathy, again, another big one, the more that I'm able to realize that life is about choices a lot of the time not always of course there are so many things that are out of our control but there are so many things that are in our control how I respond to things how I speak to people how I approach my work my relationships I have choices in all of those things and that is so empowering and recognizing that you can lead in those choices with empathy and compassion is probably the biggest change that I've kind of tried to shift into over the last 12 months and so yeah you brought all of that up for me and I'm really happy that you didn't choose something that was very health and fitness focused but instead focus on something that's about choice about how we can be as humans and how we can have a positive impact on the world right and um, so yeah I really appreciate that that's beautiful Alice I I can hear the passion in your voice as you shared that that was just so beautiful does it make you feel different Absolutely. And this is the thing, as as much as it sounds so um, kind of self-serving, being compassionate and empathetic to other people actually makes me feel so much better and actually helps me to be more compassionate and empathetic to myself. Um, It's a funny, you know, kind of thing that you think in, in, in doing that for other people, it wouldn't change anything about you, but actually it really does. And in fact, you know, I think you spoke about this earlier in our conversation, but in doing, you know, just then in doing something for someone else, you've actually made yourself feel so much better. 
And I think, you know, you've referenced a couple of times in this chat about how we are becoming more and more disconnected as humans, right? And I, I see it myself. I, I even feel it, you know, some nights I'm in bed with Patty and we're both on our phones and I think, God, what are we doing here? <laughs> we are so disconnected. And, you know, all I can bring it back to is again, you know, that thing of we have, you know, certain choices and we can choose to lead in certain ways and having that conversation with a stranger or helping someone who might need you or, you know, doing something kind to someone else, having that conversation, whatever it is, all of those things in small ways, in big ways, whatever it is, bring us together make us feel less alone and make us feel better about ourselves. And I think that's really quite important for us to recognize. And it's one of the main things that I wanted people to know in the book. So it's great that you're you're talking about it. Yeah, it's fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Gemma, thank you so much. It ended on a bit, a bit of an emotional note, but I kind of loved where we went yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, um, I love it too. Thank you so, so much for coming on. You are always so brilliant. And I know that um, I'm sure lots of people will now run and buy that book because it is a really good one and a really good one, especially this January to be reading that's free of diet culture rubbish and actually just really centered in kind of good information, evidence-based and and a really nice read. So thank you so much. Uh, we will put the link to the book in the show notes, everyone. So if you are interested in buying it, you can head there now. Gemma, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your week. Thank you, Alice. I've loved every moment. you so much for listening i really hope you enjoyed that episode i would love it if you could take some time to rate review and follow the podcast as it really helps others to find it we have a new episode dropping each week so this will also ensure you don't miss out see you next time insanity group